0: So hear God's word, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, and I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, and they are free from common human burdens, and they are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you rise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell all of your deeds. This is God's word. Amen.
1: It's a privilege to join you again in College Church. Um, I've appreciated the links in this church over several decades now. Psalm 73 will remind many Bible readers of other well-known passages in Scripture. The book of Job, for example, or Habakkuk, or Jeremiah. Because in each of those cases, you find people who... are slipping down into the mire of bitterness. In Job's case, he was a just man, a good man, who nevertheless faced the loss of his goods and his family, the mockery of his friends. He began well in standing up under these pressures and still trusting God, but but by the end, he's, he's right on the edge, so much so that he wishes he had a lawyer so that he could talk to God. You've slipped a long way when you need a lawyer to talk to God. (laughs) In the case of Jeremiah, he was a faithful prophet. He had given the word of the Lord and delivered it to all and sundry without fear or favor. But all it did was earn him abuse. He wasn't honored or respected because he was a faithful prophet. He was hunted down by different political parties. Eventually, his life was threatened and he ended up on a rather sad note, transported by uh, alien rulers to another country. Uh, he, he wished that he had never been born. And then, of course, there is um, Habakkuk, another faithful prophet. He can understand how God can use a wicked nation to chasten the covenant people of God, what he finds hard to understand is how God can use a nation which on any scale is much more sociologically wicked than the covenant people themselves. That just doesn't seem right. And in each case, you hear through their writings an edge of bitterness that creeps in. Bitterness. So also Asaph here. Here is a man who is marked by the chains of bitterness? In some ways, verse one is a setup for the rest of the psalm. It sets the standard of what should be. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's good to His own covenant people. If you really believe that passionately and live your life out, out of it, then then it's difficult to be bitter. But that's the standard that Asaph is on the edge of losing, and he doesn't really regain it until the last two verses, as we shall see. The expression to those who are pure in heart needs to be understood. This means more than clean-minded. It means also single-minded. It's not just referring to those who manage to fight off pornography. They're pure. But rather, who fight off duplicity with respect to their relationship to God. They are single minded. They are fastened on God. Their hope is in Him. Their trust is in Him. They're pure in heart. And that, of course, gets picked up a little later. In verse 13, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. He doesn't just mean clean. He means, in vain, I've been faithful to God. I've had a pure heart heading in one direction and it hasn't paid off. Then the rest of the psalm is divided basically into two parts. First, the profile of bitterness, verses 2 to 14. And then, verses 15 and following, we find Asaph on the brink. As in God's mercy, he begins to fight back. How will he stand up against this bitterness? The profile of bitterness, then. It's divided into three parts. The focus first is on Asaph himself, then on the rest of the people, and then back to Asaph himself. Asaph himself, verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What has Asaph begun to slip away from? Well, in the flow from verse 1 to verse 2, he's slipping away from purity in heart, from being single-minded, from being focused on God. He's slipping away from that kind of consistency, integrity of life. Why have his feet almost slipped? Verse 3, For I envied the arrogant. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy is a terrible sin. In jealousy, most commonly we mean we are jealous of the things or the gifts or the graces the other person has. In the case of envy, envy, we envy the person himself, herself. We want to be in their place. It's not fair that they have so much. It's not just that they have more that we want. We, we wish we could swap places with them to be where they are. I envied the arrogant. Now, it's bad enough to envy people who are basically more or less as we are. They just happen to have had more luck, a little more prosperity. But here... Asaph has slipped so far that he actually envies the wicked. His his moral kilter is so far off that provided he can be in their place, whether it's because of more goods or more power or more smarts or more looks or more approbation, more approval, more fame, who knows? Nevertheless, he, he wants to be where they are even if they are arrogant, if they are wicked. And, of course, in one sense, he's not being very realistic, which brings us to the second part. As for others, verses 4 and 12, let me tell you what they're like, these people that he's envying. He says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Now, that, on any reading, is... Preposterous! It's, it's over the top. B- because we all know that some people who are wicked and arrogant and f- end up with cancer too. They die young. Some of them have heart attacks. Some of them live to ripe old age. That's true. But some of them die young. It's not true that all the wicked are prosperous and all the righteous are, are impoverished. It, it just isn't true. And part of the problem is that we start choosing our standards of comparison you see, if, if you are envious of the well to do, with whom do you compare yourself? You don't compare yourself with the two billion or so people who make less than two bucks a day and are managing to live off it. You compare yourself with those who are more or less in your station, but who have so much more. And in this case, even if they are wicked and arrogant, you. Choose them because that's what you want. It's a reflection of your own heart. Do you see? We choose our standards of comparison. That's how we nurture our bitterness. In other words, this is saying as much about Asaph as it's saying about the people he's envying. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're the beautiful people. They're free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Look at their clothes, verses 6 to 8. They wear the clothing of pride and violence, characterized by perverse minds and malicious scoffing. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Oh, there are lots of examples, especially this speaking of oppression, this speaking with malice. It characterizes so much of the Internet, doesn't it, today? The instant desire to shame people because they're not wearing the right thing or they said the wrong thing. Instantaneous judgmentalism. But they're powerful in their own ways. They, they seem to get a free pass. They get a free ride. They may be nurturing all kinds of hatred and envy and jealousy and racism, but they get a free ride. The whole passage, one writer says, is a masterful picture of these darlings of fortune, overblown, overweening, laughable if they were not so ruthless, their vanity egging them on to hector the very universe. And, of course, in, in history, it's easy to think of spectacular examples, the Idi Amiens of this world, Stalin, Hitler, Mugabe. Or you can think in biblical categories of Ahab and Pharaoh and Judas Iscariot. Or you can think of more commonly known uh, folk who do not have positions of power but abuse what they have, like Bernie Madoff. But you don't have to go to such well-known figures. The... The, the, the culture as a whole is, is full of people who are destructive, malicious, cruel, callous hearts. From these callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In fact, in verse 11, they are clearly functional atheists They say, how would God know? And, and to get there, in verses 9 and 10, the sweep of their arrogance is pathetic, laughable, and cruel. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Verse 10 is hard to understand, but if I grasp it aright, It's referring to people who are so strong in their opinions, their condescension, their callous judgments, and so on, that they attract followers. Just because someone is arrogant does not mean that he or she has got no followers. It sometimes means that those are the people who attract certain kinds of people who like to be followers, and their heroes can do no wrong. Whether they're leaders in business or leaders in industry or leaders in politics or leaders in hate, they, they, they attract their followers so that the followers begin to drink from them. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their tongues take possession of the earth. And so they are acting like functional atheists. Verse 11, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? If God, your God, is so powerful and he's going to hold me to account, hey, how come I've got away with so much? I've got good health and I've got lots of money and I'm doing quite well in society. How does God know? Whether God exists or not, I don't give a rip because at the end of the day, your God doesn't seem to know anything. In other words, this is a functional kind of atheism, and let's be quite frank. Functional atheism can be found sometimes in the church. You can believe with your head that God exists and that he's just and that he's good, but act as if he's dead. That, of course, is exactly what happened to Martin Luther. Martin Luther was known for his fits of depression that drove him to the edge of despair. One night he came home, and as he approached the house, he, he saw black crepe on the windows, which was a sign that the culture of the day that somebody had died. So he came into the house depressed and said, all right, what's the bad news? Who's died? And his wife said, God is dead. He was ready to blow up and chew her out for blasphemy until she said, at least that's the way you're acting. He was acting like a functional atheist Do do, do you see? And these people are now so detached from any moral commitments whatsoever that they act like functional atheists. This is part of the root of real bitterness. Verse 12 then presents a summary. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Verse 13. This is what the wicked are like. Verse 12. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. So then the writer returns at the end to himself, wallowing in self-pity, verses 13 and 14. He starts off with himself in verses 3 and 4. Then he describes these people he's envying, down to verse 12. And now he returns to himself once again, the writer wallowing in self-pity. When I was a boy, in our home, the home in which I grew up, we were often disciplined for attitude. And if we started feeling sorry for ourselves, we were mercifully, mer- mercilessly mocked. You, some of you are of the same vintage as I am. You probably heard this yourself. It's a little ditty that's gone around long enough. But believe me, if we wallowed in much self-pity in our house, my mother would start singing in her lovely soprano voice, Nobody likes me, everybody hates me. I'm going in the garden and I'm going to eat worms. Big, long, skinny ones, little, short, fat ones, little, round, fuzzy ones that stick in your throat. (laughs) And she had several verses. (laughs) If this is worse than teenage self-pity, teenagers go through stages where the world's not fair. Basically, that means I want to be number one and I'm not number one. No, no. This is worse because it is enmeshed in profound self-righteousness. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Here's the profile of bitterness. And then in the second part of the psalm, we find Asaph standing on the brink, having second thoughts, beginning to fight it off. Verses 15 to 26. What stops the writer from drowning in this quicksand of bitterness? Or to put it more personally, what will stop us? Five things. Number one, consideration of others, verse 15. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. In other words, it sounds as if all of what has preceded is still in his thought life. He hasn't let it seep out to public declaration. He hasn't become a public atheist. It's the way he's thinking inconsistently. But now he says... But if I had spoken out like that, he was on the edge. Or back in verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. But if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. That is, you pass on your attitudes to other people. You can pass them on to your own children. If you're bitter parents, your chances are very good of producing bitter children. If you're grateful parents, your chances are very good of generating Gratitude in your children. Do, do, do you see you pass things on? Now that's just your children. The psalmist's vista is even wider. I would have betrayed your children addressed to God. I, I, I would have corrupted the people of God. I would have corrupted uh, my, my fellow believers. I, I would have betrayed the covenant people. So consideration of others might stop somebody from wallowing in bitterness. Bitterness is such a poison corrodes an atmosphere, a sense of humor, a household, a church. Second, there is a return to a God-centered stance. Verses 16 and 17. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, the psalmist says, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. So, in the ancient world, the sanctuary of God would have been the temple. So it's as if Asaph has decided, as it were, to, to go to the temple building where the sacrifices were offered morning and evening and for the great festivals and the temple choir sang and the reading of Scripture took place and, and so on. And it helped to restore in him the centrality of God, the sheer Godhood of God. Now, we don't have a sanctuary like that. We have a better one. We are gathered around the eternal throne. We're there already by faith, read Hebrews 12. And we anticipate being there in person in resurrection existence on the last day. And it changes everything. To have this God-centered attitude fights off the functional atheism that actually corrodes so many of our relationships. One of the things that this God-centered viewpoint changes is the perspective. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, verse 17, then I understood their final destiny. Well, if you judge how productive and rich and prosperous and uncaring Bernie Madoff was for the first 10 years of his working life, he got away with quite a lot. How about the second 10 years? Well, quite a lot. Third 10 years. Quite a lot. How about a hundred years? How about a thousand years? How about a million years? How about a billion years? You start putting God back into your evaluations of things and then you have to remember, whether you are a reader of the old covenant or of the new covenant, you have to remember that God is not mocked. Not only will justice be done, it will be seen to be done on the last day. So part of having a God-ordered value system, a God-ordered perspective, is, is to remember that Your evaluations of who's winning and who's looking can't be very, very accurate unless you throw in a couple of million years. It changes everything. Then I understood their final destiny. And that's teased out for us in the third point. This second point, a return to God-centered stance, is teased out for us in the third point where there is insight from the temporary nature of worldly glitter Verses 18 to 20. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, which you can easily download from the web, writes... We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, and finally and unspeakably ignored. And all of this by God's judicial decree. This is what God does. God does this. To doubt this inevitability, the inevitability of God's justice, is to doubt God himself. It's why Daniel, for example, can can speak of those who are raised on the last day to shame and everlasting contempt. It's why Jesus can bring the Sermon on the Mount to a near close and say, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have I not done this and have I not done that? Have I not preached? Have I not done miracles? And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And until we factor in that God-centered stance that looks at things from an eternal perspective and not just from our working years, We can't measure things very accurately. A number of years ago, I was asked to lead an evangelistic inductive Bible study at the uh, Bell Labs in Naperville. It was just a a dozen or so scientists. There was myself and one other chap who were Christians, and the rest had agreed to study the Sermon on the Mount together for a number of weeks. And the, we had a couple of rules to, to preserve some order. We weren't going to talk about whether it was true. We were going to find out what it meant. We are just going to read it and see what it actually said. And, and for good order, we, we said um, I would speak for 20 to 23 minutes while they were eating their sandwiches, and then we'd throw it open up to a clean discussion, and anybody could say anything they wanted and s- s- see where it went. So uh, it, it became quite interesting. There were two or three Hindus and, um, uh, of a secular variety and a couple of Muslims of a fairly secular variety and a, a number of philosophical materialists who d- didn't believe in anything besides matter and energy and space and time and, and um, a couple of failed Catholics. and uh, it, it was a typical profile of a, an educated crop of people in a research facility. And... Um, The discussions became quite interesting. And then we got to the bit in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrode, where thieves dig through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode, where thieves do not dig through and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we read the passage, and this chap interrupted said, excuse me, do I understand that all right? Now, of course, he was breaking the rules. What was I supposed to say? Wait your turn. Don't ask questions now. <laughs> I said, well, what do you think the passage says? And he said, well, he says, um, most of us in these facilities, uh, we've got our lives pretty well in order and, and mapped out. You know, we're, we're in an ideal research facility, front rank. It's produced quite a number of uh, of Nobel laureates, and to be frank, some of us have hopes that we'll add to their number, and we have uh, good budgets and good facilities and good projects, and we intend to spend our days here, and around about the age of 65 or thereabouts, uh, we'll, we'll step down and start commanding good consultancy fees, and and write some of the books that we didn't manage to finish when we were so busy in the labs and and um and play with our grandchildren quite a bit and um then after that it gets a bit vague <laughs> but this jesus is saying that unless you weigh everything by eternity nothing else makes sense it's 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 all for naught it's going to be destroyed isn't isn't that what he's saying he says he says you you, 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 you've got to weigh things from an eternal perspective. Isn't that what he's saying? <laughs> I said, I, I, I think you've got it. That's, that's exactly what he's saying. You, you, you see, it is such, to a somebody who's never thought it before, it is such a, a revolutionary idea. But it's an idea that Christians have adopted Intellectually but not always lived out in practice. Do, 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 do you see? It, it does transform everything. And that's the point of verses 18 to 20. But then there's a fourth step that, a, that Asaph insists upon. He wants us to reflect accurately on our own stupidity. Verses 21 to 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. That's shocking language. I was really dumb. I was acting like a dog. Really stupid. That's what bitterness looks like to God. These people that We human beings are envious of. These people whose possessions make us jealous, well, from God's perspective, they're not much more than fantasies, the end of verse 20. You will despise them as fantasies. And if that's an accurate way of looking at things, well, then then when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. We're used to seeing this sort of thing in a family, of course, uh, teenagers as they're going through the years of change often uh, easily feel that the world is unfair and their noses are out of joint and everybody's picking on me and it's, it's not right and, and that's partly because they're, they're moving into self-awareness and they, they somehow have adopted the stance that they're at the center of the universe and, and therefore the world owes them a great deal a, a sense of entitlement that, that means disappointment is easy to achieve but it's a bit sad when adults take that stance. But adults, likewise in a family, dare I say it, adults in a church, can easily start looking around and resenting people who have more or who are stronger or who are more influential. And instead of dealing with it or repenting of it, you, 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 you start bottling it up inside, nurturing it and, you, you don't go at the same door as they do in the church building, so you don't have to face up to them. You, 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 you want to avoid them. And, and instead of it being clean relationships of brothers and sisters with different gifts and graces, suddenly bitterness is, is controlling so much. And Asaph said, When I was like that, I was stupid. I was acting like a dog figuring out who's trying to be the alpha male. I was embittered. But the most powerful step he takes is in verses 23 to 26. He learns afresh to delight in God. Yet I am always with you, he says to God. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. That is, even in this life, we enjoy the presence of God. And we enjoy his counsel, which comes to us through his word again and again and again. And this life isn't the end of it. This is the positive side of the fact that God speaks negatively of the final destiny of the wicked in verse 17. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you really believe that knowledge of the living God is the most valuable thing that you can ever have for both time and eternity, how can you possibly be envious of those who don't have it? no matter what else they do have. Part of our problem, I think, I've said this in other contexts, forgive me if you've heard me say it before, part of our problem, I think, is that we, for various reasons, have a pretty truncated view of what heaven is like. The new heaven and the new earth, resurrection, existence. We know the words, we can recite the formulas and so on, but we're governed by, in our thinking, I think, by these little cartoons where heaven is portrayed as somebody in a white nightgown sitting on a puffy white cloud strumming a harp. Now, a harp's a great instrument. Every orchestra should have one, not more than two. <laughs> They're difficult instruments to play, and they can be hauntingly beautiful. On the other hand, if I've got to spend the first billion years or so strumming a harp wearing a white nightgown, I have some questions about calling that heaven. It's better than the alternative, but not by much. <laughs> if, if that's what heaven is, there's, there's, there's something truncated and, and, and narrow about it. But what are the biblical images of what the new heaven and the new resurrection existence are li- is like? Well, it would take too, too long to go through all of the Depictions, but they're highly, highly diverse, sometimes portrayed as a time and place of rest, sometimes portrayed as a time and place of work, fulfilling work. Recall the parable of the talents where Jesus says to the two slaves who, who worked hard and doubled their master's assets, well done, good and faithful slaves. You've been faithful over a few things, The few things included millions and millions and millions of dollars. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you rulers, administrators over many things. In other words, he's going to give them a real job. The new heaven and the new earth is going to give you real jobs. Sometimes called ruling, administering. Service, joyfully ended, and never tired, and never corrupt. Never facing or being a corrosive manager. And you're going to learn stuff. Some of us think, mistakenly, that when we get to heaven, we'll know everything. But that's not possible. Our brains are too small. Besides, omniscience is what the theologians call an incommunicable attribute of God. That is, an attribute of God that can't be shared with non-God. Only God has the incommunicable attributes. We will never be omnipotent, as God is omnipotent. We will never be omnipresent, as God is omnipresent. We will never be omniscient, as God is omniscient. So we're going to have a lot of stuff to learn, which means the new heaven and the new earth is going to be an eternity of schooling. Now, some of you at a certain age may resent that, but your heart will change and you'll grow to love it. I like it already. An eternal school sounds pretty good to me. What language are we going to speak when we get there? We assume that it will be English. (laughs) But, of course, I've got a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ in China who have a different perspective, and they're more numerous than we are. (laughs) But in point of fact, I don't think there's a hint in Scripture that we'll all speak the same language, at least not initially the Bible says there will be people there from every language and tribe and people and nation. So if there are people there from every tribe, four- foot six pygmies from Bolivia and six-foot six Swedes from Scandinavia, well, if there are people from every tribe and every nation, why shouldn't there be people from every language? If it takes me the first million years to learn Mandarin, who cares? Use the second million years for Arabic. (laughs) I won't be able to ask Paul the theological questions I've got from him until I've polished up my verbal Hellenistic Greek. Do do, 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 do you see? There'll be learning. And beyond of that, there'll, there'll be choirs. Imagine singing the Hallelujah Chorus to the thousandth degree in a perfect choir around the throne on the last day. But the best part of all, the part that theologians across the century have called the visio dei, the vision of God. We will see him as he is. The very angels of heaven have to hide his glory from their own eyes. They cannot gaze on him and live. But the Bible says of God's own redeemed people, they shall see his face. And somehow that will be so splendid that it will breed the most holy joy and ecstasy and contentment and glory and worship and honor. Now do you want to go? And that's only a handful of passages. There are so many. And, and the author is, has got that. He's, he's begun to think about it. You guide me now with your counsel, verse 24, and afterward you will take me to glory. What have I? Whom have I in heaven but you? Sometimes at our funerals, we make a great deal of dying someday and going and seeing our beloved relatives. Oh, I'm sure there's a bit of that in Scripture, but the Christian hope in Scripture is much more than that. It's seeing God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. That's the contrast with the jealousy and the envy. Before he was jealous and envious about all the things on earth. Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's my inheritance. And how much more then can a Christian this side of the cross speak with such clarity on these matters? There are so many passages that teach the same thing. Here are some lines from Romans 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's the antidote to bitterness. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us, and so on, and so on, and so on. Living in the light of eternity, focusing on God, And from a Christian perspective, remembering the cross, the greatest demonstration of God's love for his redeemed people. Love that brought Jesus, his dear son, to the cross to pay for my own sins in his own body on the tree. And Paul asks, if God has given us his son, how shall he not give us also everything else that we need? And that brings us then to the final contrast, verses 27 and 28. On the one hand, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. On the other hand, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So if you have come to this building this morning, Christian or otherwise, awash in the muck of bitterness, this is the time to repent, to remember that you have a spectacular inheritance in Christ Jesus, to ask for forgiveness, to resolve afresh to live in the light of the cross and the light of eternity. And if you have never closed with Christ, it's your time, even now, where you sit, to raise your heart heavenward and ask for forgiveness and the God-given vista of faith that enables you to see things from eternity's perspective and ask for forgiveness and the strength of holy joy. Let us pray. So help all of us, we pray, to live with eternity's values in view. To live not as functioning atheists, but as believers. Weighing things by the measure of eternity, by the measure of the cross. That the joy of the Lord may be our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.